A Culture of Industry. Shortly after his first child was born, Mark Zuckerberg, whose labor income from creating Facebook, paid to him in founder shares, has created the fifth largest fortune in the world, wrote his new daughter an open letter. The letter, expounding on the hopes of the meritocratic elite, admired human creativity and innovation, lamented inequality, and pledged to donate 99% of Zuckerberg's Facebook fortune to advance human potential and promote equality for all children in the next generation. Zuckerberg's donation immediately placed him in the top rank of American philanthropists. But the most remarkable thing about his act is not its scale, but its setting and its motives. Zuckerberg's letter drew a direct connection between the Facebook Foundation's social mission to support education, innovation, and equality of opportunity, and Zuckerberg's own devotion to the newborn daughter in whose name he dedicated the enterprise and the gift. This connection would have been literally unimaginable to an earlier elite, for whom inherited wealth and the leisure that it allowed constituted social status. The old aristocracy joined land and titles into a single social unity, establishing elaborate express formulas to govern dynastic succession. Under aristocracy, when leisure was mandatory for the elite, disinheritance ostracized the heir. If the Duke of Marlborough had divested his only daughter of Blenheim Palace and of the inheritance required to support a rentier's leisure, this would have been intended and understood as a profound rejection of the daughter or perhaps of the entire aristocratic order. This relegated disinheritance to an imaginative fiction, a device used to swell the progress of a plot or to symbolize an ideal. It would have been eccentric, disruptive, and even bizarre for an actual person to disinherit his child. Meritocratic inequality gives Zuckerberg's choice an entirely different frame. He has, of course, deprived his daughter of virtually all of a massive patrimony, including the immense capital income that would otherwise have attended her inheritance. But his remaining wealth and social position more than suffice for him to give her the education and training she needs to join the ranks of her generation's elite workers. Moreover, the economics of elite labor will enable her to deploy her training to command a high income of her own, and the social economy of esteem will enable her to convert her training, work, and labor income into her own independent social status. Zuckerberg's giving away his fortune, therefore, will not deprive his daughter of any essential element of caste. To the contrary, it might even promote her caste by insulating her from the temptations to idle decadence that accompany great inherited wealth and that have notoriously led other young heiresses to ridicule and social decline, especially where social and economic arrangements have eliminated the avenues for honorable exploit that earlier elites enjoyed. By disinheriting his daughter, Zuckerberg promotes her ambition and dignity and protects her against a dissolute life. It is therefore no surprise that Zuckerberg is anything but outlandish or alone in his giving. To date, five of the 10 richest people in America and nearly 170 billionaires worldwide, representing nearly 10% of the world's total, 
have signed Warren Buffett's and Bill Gates's giving pledge to donate the majority of their fortunes to philanthropy, either within their lifetimes or upon their deaths. The economic and social transformation from a society led by a hereditary leisured elite to one led by the working rich has transformed what would once have been bizarre into something rational and even admirable. Zuckerberg's gift embraces rather than rejects the reigning social and economic order. The web of meritocratic ideals that support Zuckerberg's choice today is just as thick and dense as the aristocratic ideals that would once have condemned it. The new rich do not just happen to work hard or for high wages, nor do they work industriously merely because they happen to prefer owning expensive things to having free time. Instead, the rich now pursue intense and remunerative work reflectively and for its own sake, and elite society organizes and consolidates these attitudes into a distinctive worldview, which drives both the Facebook Foundation and Zuckerberg's hopes for his own daughter. Veblen's leisure class has been displaced not just in economic fact, but also in social norms. The old elite culture of leisure has been replaced by a new elite culture of industry. Just as aristocracy once did, so meritocracy now sustains economic practices and moral principles that reciprocally support each other in equilibrium patterns. The new norms even allow the rich to square filial loyalty and civic duty, and, like Zuckerberg, to pass their caste down through the generations openly and in good faith. Industry has become as mandatory for the meritocratic elite as leisure once was for aristocrats. Today, elites boast and even complain of their business from social necessity, as a shield against any suggestion that they might be idle or unsought after, that their labor might be in greater supply than demand. An advertisement for the Wall Street Journal reads, People who don't have time make time to read the Wall Street Journal. These formulations and the attitudes behind them have infected the ideology of the elite. When law students were recently asked to report the maximum weekly work hours that they would accept, the mean student answered 70, and some students reported being willing to work as many hours as necessary, or, more concretely, 120 weekly hours. I have not once, literally never, encountered a Yale law student who justified or even explained poor performance on the ground that studies should not encroach unduly on leisure. And in anonymous surveys of incoming Yale freshmen, 80% said that academics would take priority over extracurricular activities. And none, not a single one, has said that social life would be significantly more important than studying. The students, moreover, do not outgrow this ideology when they enter the workforce. To the contrary, over half of people surveyed who work over 60 hours per week openly self-identify as workaholics. And I have also never heard, again, not once, a partner at a major law firm complain of slacking in her office. Actually, bragging about idleness in the vein of Bertie Wooster would be unthinkable. Intense work is now a symbol of excellence and dynamism, of being committed, as one investment banker explained, to doing whatever it takes to get things done. 
The extreme workers described in the Harvard Business Review, therefore, wear their commitments like badges of honor and advertise their extreme industry on their sleeves. Sometimes they do so literally, whereas financiers once wore fine and fragile clothes to signal that they did not work. An investment banker now tells an anthropologist that Wall Street professionals shouldn't wear suspenders because it looks like you spent too much time on your appearance and you are supposed to just work hard. You shouldn't be wasting time putting on suspenders in the morning. Exploit has been reconstituted as industry, completely reversing Bertie Wooster's inclination to treat work as leisure. Many of today's most intensive and remunerative jobs, including pursuits as varied as management and sport, were once gentlemen's vocations or hobbies, subject to strict social norms limiting the effort and intensity with which they might be pursued. Even celebrity, fame for its own sake, the purest form of exploit, is now framed as a form of industry, with effort openly and notoriously displayed on social media for all to see. And time itself has come to be imbued directly with economic value, including among elites who, unprecedentedly, can now bill and be paid by the hour. Lawyers and consultants, especially at the toniest firms, compete for logging the most billable hours and trade fables and even tall tales of immensely long hours as a disciplinary tool. The meritocratic elite clings to its industry, stoically accepting that enormous incomes entitle employers to extract almost unbounded effort and urging that their enormous effort justifies these incomes. They pray that their industry and income might reciprocally launder otherwise intolerable exertion and inequality. Employers, they say, have the right to expect top employees to work hard, so that it would be unreasonable for elite workers to insist on a nine-to-five, five-day-per-week work schedule. Long work hours are what one prominent commentator called a fair trade for inflated salaries. In the words of another finance worker, clients pay us lots and lots of money to be at their disposal 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Conversely, extreme hours approaching the limits of human endurance underwrite elite claims to deserve salaries that similarly approach the limits of the economy's capacity to pay. The Harvard Business Review's extreme jobbers consider their over-the-top efforts a reflection of character so that to them, a 70-hour workweek is about proving their worth. And prominent conservative economist and former chair of Harvard University's economics department, Gregory Mankiw, argues that superordinate workers should enjoy enormous incomes because they have earned them, as what he calls the just desserts of their industry. These claims have a dark side also, as the meritocratic elite do not just respect and admire industry, but also disrespect and even despise idleness and leisure. Investment bankers complain about the outside, non-elite world, in which people leave work at 5, 6 p.m. and take one-hour lunch breaks and just are not motivated in the same way as they are. More concretely, Lloyd Blankfein, who has paid tens of millions of dollars for serving as the CEO of Goldman Sachs, recently argued that the unnecessary idleness of premature retirement counsels raising Social Security's retirement age. 
Industrious work and long hours constitute the eliteness of the working rich. Busyness has in itself become the badge of honor. The social order that Veblen discerned, which had been stable across a millennium, has within a century been turned on its head. Aristocrats yield to meritocrats, and the leisured elite gives way to the superordinate working class. Zuckerberg's hopes for his daughter reflect the social order into which she has been born. Once leisure constituted high status, labor was, after all, the name of the subordinate class. Even the left agreed, as the working class, in the labor movement, reclaimed its subordinated name as a political ideal. Alexei Grigoryevich Stakhanov, a record-setting, hard-working Soviet coal miner, became the poster child for the effortful productivity of the socialist worker. Now, meritocratic habits and norms have transformed both the rich and the rest. The baton of industrious effort has been largely detached from the increasingly redundant middle class and passed up the income ladder. This merger of industry and honor explains why the middle class experiences its enforced idleness as insulting and even degrading, and why the working rich commit to epidemic industry that the pursuit of mere wealth cannot rationalize. Today's Stakhanovites are the one percenters. Poverty and wealth. Every economy may be described in terms of two kinds of inequality. High-end, which concerns the gap between the rich and the middle class, and low-end, which concerns the gap between the middle class and the poor. Economic inequality can therefore grow and shrink at the same time, as rising high-end and falling low-end inequality occur together. When this happens, the shape of maldistribution alters. For most of human history, including at the middle of the last century, Inequality and injustice centered on poverty. Today, they center on wealth. At the end of the Second World War, a collaboration between big business, big labor, and big government remade American society, literally creating the modern middle class. The median real income for American men, for example, rose from $25,700 in 1947 to $41,836 in 1967, in 2018 dollars. And the number of American households that owned their home rose over 40% between 1940 and 1960. By the late 1950s, when Galbraith published The Affluent Society, the prosperity of the middle was widely felt and had penetrated the self-image of the age, in St. Clair Shores and throughout the country. Not all Americans were well represented by big business, big labor, or big government, however. Racial minorities and women would have to wait several decades before their claims of justice received a serious hearing, and LGBTQ people would have to wait a half century. Moreover, the poor also had no stake and no say in any branch of the triumvirate that governed mid-century America, and were, as Galbraith observed, a voiceless minority, a silent presence left out of this middle-class idol. The middle-class boom dramatically reduced high-end inequality, but low-end inequality and poverty both endured. 
1962, as the top 1% income share approached an all-time low, another book, Michael Harrington's The Other America, entered this scene. Harrington was a graduate of Yale Law School and a socialist, although democratic and staunchly anti-communist. Arthur Schlesinger once called him the only responsible radical in America. Harrington had spent much of the post-war middle-class boom immersing himself in the circumstances of America's poor. The Other America reflected this immersion. The book described in vivid detail what one reviewer called alarming pockets of despair and hunger in the depressed areas of the United States. Poverty denied many citizens what Harrington said were the minimal levels of health, housing, food, and education that our present stage of scientific knowledge specifies as necessary for life as it is now lived in the United States. The book's angry thesis, as another reviewer said, was that behind the glittering facade of America's affluent society lies a ghetto of loneliness and defeat populated by the poor. Harrington claimed that the ghetto was massive, comprising between 40 and 50 million citizens who material deprivation made internal exiles, cast out from the affluent society, and in this sense, almost harmed by the middle-class boom. He could not be precise because the U.S. government did not collect poverty statistics until 1963 to 64, after Harrington's book became famous. But Harrington could be sure that poverty, grinding, material deprivation, overwhelmed a substantial share of Americans. And when the official statistics debuted, roughly a quarter of the population still lived in poverty. In any event, these statistics were for Harrington a means rather than an end. I would beg the reader, he wrote, to forget the numbers game. Whatever the precise calibrations, it is obvious that these statistics represent an enormous and unconscionable amount of human suffering in this land. They should be read with a sense of outrage. Harrington aspired to be an American Dickens, and in this way, to record the smell and texture and quality of pervasive poverty in the midst of affluence. Other mid-century writers shared these sensibilities and corroborated the picture that the other America painted. Gabriel Kolko's Wealth and Power in America, an analysis of social class and income distribution, also published in 1962 and often read together with Harrington's book, provided unemotional and even clinical but intense detail. The average poor family, Kolko wrote, had no telephone in the house, but makes three pay calls a week. They buy one book a year and write one letter a week. The father buys one heavy wool suit every two years and a light wool suit every three years. The wife, one suit every 10 years or one skirt every five years. In 1950, the family spent a total of $80 to $90 about $850 in 2015 dollars on all types of home furnishings, electrical appliances, and laundry equipment. The entire family consumes a total of two five-cent ice cream cones, one five-cent candy bar, two bottles of soda, and one bottle of beer a week. For these Americans, and there were enough to constitute a mass rather than a fringe, middle-class affluence remained out of reach, and St. Clair Shores another country. 
The War on Poverty. The Other America received respectful reviews on publication, but it drew only a modest readership and appeared at first to have no broader impact. Reviewers predicted low sales, and Harrington himself, saying that he would be happy to sell 2,500 copies, traveled overseas to Europe soon after publication. But in January 1963, Dwight MacDonald featured the book in a 50-page New Yorker review entitled Our Invisible Poor. The review, the longest of its kind in the magazine's history, was more widely read than the books it discussed and captured the public imagination. It also captured the attention of the political elite, and in particular, of President Kennedy's economic advisor, Walter Heller, who gave some combination of Harrington's book and McDonald's review to the president himself. Kennedy took their lessons to heart. I believe, Schlesinger later wrote, that the other America helped crystallize Kennedy's determination in 1963 to accompany the tax cut by a poverty program. While it is unclear if President Kennedy actually read the book, it was widely assumed in Washington that he had. Certainly, Kennedy's 1963 State of the Union message took a page out of the book and reported that 32 million Americans were living on the outskirts of poverty. And in April 1963, Kennedy proposed to establish a National Service Corps with a message that began, Poverty in the midst of plenty is a paradox that must not go unchallenged in this country. He might have added that the paradox put his own government's moral authority at risk. How could a society that condemned its poor to avoidable material misery and social exclusion legitimately expect them to remain loyal to its institutions and to obey its laws? On November 19, 1963, Heller received a commitment from Kennedy to include an anti-poverty measure in the administration's 1964 legislative program. Kennedy was assassinated three days later, but the anti-poverty initiative was the first economic idea that Heller raised with the newly sworn-in President Johnson. The program appealed to Johnson's New Deal sensibilities, as he put it, and his first message to Congress on November 27, 1963, proposed to carry on the fight against poverty and misery and disease and ignorance in other lands and in our own. The popular press took up the call to arms. In his first State of the Union message on January 8, 1964, President Johnson declared his now famous unconditional war on poverty in America. The most important thing to understand about the war on poverty is that it reduced poverty. Victory was not complete, unconditional, or even sufficient, of course, and poverty remains real and scandalous. The war on poverty stalled in the late 1970s, and poverty has worsened in recent years, as it always does following economic downturns. But the war on poverty's core achievements have more or less endured, including in the face of rising economic inequality. Even in the shadow of the Great Recession, Poverty is by any measure both narrower and shallower than in the past, and abject poverty remains unrecognizably less broad or deep. The downturn hit the poor hard, but there were no breadlines this time around. Indeed, 
poverty today remains dramatically less severe than it was even during the post-World War II boom and the mid-century Great Compression, which progressives romantically champion as the peak of economic justice in America. Rising economic inequality today is driven overwhelmingly not by poverty, but by concentrated wealth. The official poverty rate dropped steeply through the 1960s, from 22.4% in 1959 to a low of 11.1% in 1973. The poverty rate has been fluctuating between 11 and 15% since then. And the most recent available data for 2017 report a poverty rate of 12.3%. The actual reduction in poverty is almost certainly much greater. A supplemental poverty measure conceived in 1992 and officially sanctioned in 2011 reports that poverty has fallen by substantially more than the official measure. Other unofficial metrics record still more dramatic declines. One prominent radical recently proposed that income poverty, properly calculated, has fallen to below 5%. An alternative approach to poverty, which follows Harrington's injunction to look to the lived experience of the poor and measures poverty directly in terms of consumption, reports a still more dramatic reduction. Consumption poverty rates have not been tracked for as long or as reliably as income poverty rates. But the best available data suggests that consumption poverty has fallen from about 31% in the 1960s to perhaps as low as 4.5% by 2010. Deep poverty, the share of people living at half or less than half of the poverty threshold, is also markedly less when measured in terms of consumption rather than income. Whereas the official, income-based, deep poverty rate in 2009 remained about 6%, deep consumption poverty had fallen to below 1%. Applying Harrington's exhortation to focus on concrete details rather than abstract statistics reveals the massive improvements that these changes have made to the lived experience of the poor. The poor can afford to buy, on average, perhaps a quarter more than they could at mid-century. And their buying power for certain essentials, most notably food, has grown more rapidly still. A typical poor family spends half the share of its income on keeping itself nourished as it did at mid-century. Consumer durables also dramatically improve the well-being of the poor. In 1960, the poor had effectively no access at all to air conditioners, dishwashers, or clothes dryers, and half had no access to a car. By 2009, over 80% of the poorest quintile of American households had air conditioners, 68% had clothes dryers, 40% had dishwashers, and three-quarters owned cars. Moreover, even as they consume more, the poor yield less labor in exchange. American men with less than a high school education enjoyed over 15 more hours of quote-unquote leisure per week in 2010 than they did in 1965. And American women with less than a high school education gained over 10 hours of quote-unquote leisure per week during the same period. The scare quotes indicate that this is a mixed blessing, as it principally reflects 
involuntary unemployment and its attendant harms. But although enforced idleness imposes important burdens, rising consumption coupled with falling labor demonstrates a decline in absolute material poverty. These seemingly banal increases in consumption transform lives. Anyone who has washed clothes by hand knows that wash day really did involve a full day of hard labor every week. And between 1960 and 2004, the spread of home air conditioning reduced premature heat-related deaths by as much as 75%. Broader markers of physical health extend this trend. The mortality rate for American children under the age of five has fallen from 30.1 per thousand live births in 1960 to 6.8 per thousand in 2015. The United Nations Human Development Index for the United States has increased by about 10%, and the life expectancy of the poor has increased, although by much less than the increase enjoyed by richer Americans. None of this shows that poverty has been eradicated or that the lives of the remaining poor have become easy. The war on poverty is not yet won, and a final victory remains distressingly far off. But the early gains made by the Johnson administration have not been reversed. Even after the backlash against the Great Society that began in the Reagan Revolution and has continued through the present day, and even following the economic collapse of the Great Recession, poverty remains, depending on how it is measured, at between half and a sixth of its mid-century levels. Whatever its vices, and even as it ushers in massive new economic inequality, the American economic and political system today provides for the basic material needs of a virtually unprecedented share of citizens. The pervasive, grinding, absolute deprivation that drove the quest for economic justice at mid-century no longer dominates the American scene. Legitimate outrage at the poverty that remains does not erase and should not obscure this progress. Our America is no longer Michael Harrington's. This is a good thing. A new rupture. A second and more familiar development coincides with poverty's decline. Once again, wealth has advanced even as poverty has receded, and the top 1%'s share of national income now more than doubles its mid-century levels. High-end inequality has increased even as low-end inequality has declined. These joint developments give economic inequality a new and unprecedented face. Income ratios introduce these effects. In 1964, a typical middle-class household's income, the median income, was about four times the income of a typical poor household, the average income in the poorest quintile. A half-century later, it is only about three times as large. And in 1964, a typical rich household's income, the average in the top 1%, was about 13 times the income of a typical middle-class household. A half-century later, it has grown to about 23 times as large. In other words, the poor-slash-middle-class income gap has narrowed by about a quarter since mid-century, while the middle-class-slash-rich income gap 
has nearly doubled. Put a little differently, the poor and the middle class have converged, even as the rich have left the middle class increasingly far behind. These pressures squeeze the middle class from both ends, undoing the middle class version of affluence in St. Clair Shores and across the country, and steadily deflating what increasingly appears, looking backward, to have been a middle class bubble. Indeed, 2015 was the first year since Galbraith wrote in which the majority of Americans were not middle class, and the middle class that remains is no longer the richest in the world. An overall measure of inequality, called the Gini Index, drives the revolution home. The Gini represents inequality through a single number between zero and one. An index of zero reflects perfect equality, in which all households have identical incomes. An index of one reflects maximal inequality, in which one household captures all of the economy's income and every other household gets nothing. The Gini Index for the American economy has risen sharply over the past 50 years, from as low as 0.38 at mid-century to as high as 0.49 today. This increase captures the commonplace sense that inequality overall has shown a stark increase, from levels that resembled Norway then to levels that resemble India now. Two other trends are less familiar, but vividly display the transformation in economic inequality's center of gravity. First, the Gini Index for the bottom 70% of the U.S. income distribution, constructed not by redistributing any income, but simply by discarding all income from the top 30% of households, has fallen by about 10% since mid-century. Indeed, the Gini for the bottom 90% has remained effectively flat over this period, so that there has been no dramatic increase in inequality across the bottom nine-tenths of the U.S. income distribution. And second, the Gini for the top 5% of the income distribution now constructed by discarding all the income from the bottom 95%, has skyrocketed from as low as 0.33 at mid-century to as high as 0.5 today. Economic inequality has fallen modestly across the bottom seven-tenths of the U.S. income distribution, and inequality has risen dramatically within the top 20th. Indeed, for some recent years, Inequality within this narrow elite now exceeds inequality in the economy overall. In other words, the income gap between the merely rich and the exceptionally rich has become so large that eliminating the poor and the middle class from the distribution would actually increase inequality. Alternatively, the relatively stable inequality across the bottom parts of the distribution now serves as a ballast against exploding inequality within the very top. This result would have been unimaginable at mid-century. Then, the central economic divide separated the desperate poor from the affluent middle class, and low-end inequality dominated maldistribution. Now the central economic divide separates the super-rich from everyone else, and high-end inequality dominates. Rising inequality at the top has been accompanied not just by falling poverty, 
but also by steady or even falling inequality at the bottom. Finally, high-end inequality has grown faster than low-end inequality has fallen, which is why the genie for the complete distribution has risen. Changing the subject. These developments are not just technical curiosities, confined to national accounts and distributional tables and interesting to economists and statisticians only. Instead, the rise of the working rich transforms the lived experience and social meaning of economic inequality. Meritocracy fundamentally changes the subject of economic justice. Once, indolent wealth alongside widespread poverty gave inequality's critics a soft target. Aristocratic wastrels were easy to condemn, and the abject poor pulled at the heartstrings. Now, the rise of the working rich and the decline in poverty have hardened meritocratic inequality against the arguments that dismantled the leisure class. Superordinate workers seem almost admirable, and the middle class, even when it struggles, neither seeks nor elicits charity. The meritocratic turn frustrates equality's champions, and this gives the meritocracy trap a moral dimension. Superordinate workers earn their income and status industriously by exploiting their own effort and skill. This creates a powerful impression that meritocrats are entitled to their advantages, as under Mancu's principle of just desserts. Moreover, while it is obvious that nobody deserves to inherit an estate or a factory, as aristocratic rentier used to do, meritocrats can credibly claim to deserve the skills and work ethic that drive their incomes. A progressive might look at a landowner or factory owner from the old elite and, channeling Elizabeth Warren or Barack Obama, reasonably say, you didn't build that. But it is hard to say the same to the superordinate worker from the new elite who, whatever her initial advantages, owes her immense income to skill that she has cultivated through her own diligence and effort. To deny that meritocrats earn and deserve their incomes seems to require denying that anyone ever earns or deserves anything. The shift from low to high-end inequality further hardens meritocratic inequality against conventional progressive arguments. Poverty endures, of course, and relief remains a moral imperative. But the war on poverty, even if never completed, has transformed the political landscape. The politics of equality now focus on the growing relative gap between the top and the middle, rather than on absolute need at the bottom, on frustration among the middle class rather than wretchedness among the poor. Progressive nostalgia for the mid-century economy when the middle class thrived while the poor suffered symbolizes this shift. Meritocratic inequality makes the new focus natural. Middle-class life is hard, and the contrast between middle-class stagnation and the elite's extravagant growth and conspicuous opulence makes it harder. But the middle class cannot credibly command the intense, visceral sympathy that the poor did in Harrington's day. Then, low-end inequality was a humanitarian catastrophe. Now, high-end inequality is a political injustice. Once again, the meritocratic transformation weakens the hand of equality's champions. 
Received moral principles simply do not suit new economic realities. The arguments that defeated aristocratic inequality stand at a skew angle to the political battle lines of today, and they illuminate meritocratic inequality with at most a glancing light. The meritocratic ideal that income should track industry rather than birth, which gave mid-century progressives a powerful tool for fighting aristocratic inequality, is now itself the root of a new disease and, moreover, a moral hostage that redistribution must avoid harming. An Emboldened Adversary From the beginnings of democracy in ancient Greece, through the invention of mass democracy at the American founding, political thinkers have uniformly assumed that democratic politics enables the masses to band together and plunder the wealth of outnumbered elites. Economic inequality's recent career confounds this assumption. Even as rising inequality concentrates more and more income in a smaller and smaller elite, government has dramatically retreated from economic redistribution. The income shares of the top 1%, the top 0.1%, and the top 0.01% have roughly doubled, tripled, and quadrupled in recent decades. Over the same period, the top marginal tax rate has fallen by more than half, from over 90% throughout the 1950s and early 1960s to 70% when Ronald Reagan assumed the presidency in 1981 to below 40% today. Even as elites get richer and richer, government takes smaller and smaller shares of their income and wealth. The biggest losers from these developments, moreover, are not the poor who, even in a democracy, face obstacles to concerted political action. Instead, the biggest losers, who have simultaneously suffered a declining income share and a rising share of the tax burden, have been the broad middle class. This group includes journalists, teachers and professors, middle managers, government workers, engineers, and even doctors in general practice. It is neither ill-educated nor disempowered, but to the contrary, can influence and possibly control the nation's medical and scientific establishment, its press, its universities, and even its most important bureaucracies. The middle class possesses political skills and enjoys political access that together make it well-placed to protect its interests through democratic action. Why then did middle-class Americans not mobilize long ago to stop economic and political transformations that so signally burden them? What enabled a narrowing elite operating in a democracy effectively to plunder a massive middle class and even a large near elite? A frustrated commentator recently observed that even as significant advances in recent centuries on other fronts of injustice make slavery, racial exclusion, gender domination, or the denial of citizenship easy to condemn. Massive personal wealth remains ideologically constructed as unjust to correct. Why, during decades in which virtually every other marginalized group has progressed toward equality in spite of being in the minority, did the massively most populous disadvantaged group, the 99%, allow itself to be increasingly dispossessed. This unprecedented development 
defies millennia of received wisdom and embarrasses almost every familiar account of political economy in mass democracies. It is, in a way, an even deeper puzzle than why the middle-class eruption, when it finally came, took the nativist and populist form that it did. Meritocracy's charisma dissolves the puzzle by causing the middle class to accept, and even affirm, its own increasing disadvantage. When inequality was aristocratic, ideals concerning both sympathy and right sustained the social welfare state and the war on poverty. But today, meritocracy justifies rising economic inequality. People who feel that they have worked on productive tasks claim greater entitlement to rewards than those who feel that they have not worked. And where wealth is perceived as legitimate, support for economic redistribution declines. Mankiw sums this up when he observes, when people can see with their own eyes that a talented person made a great fortune fair and square, they tend not to resent it. The rich insist on lower top tax rates and the rest accept them because both groups agree that meritocratic inequality tracks desert and that redistribution would unjustly abuse industrious workers. The meritocratic turn even emboldens equality's enemies to attack redistribution, charging that it merely serves the ressentiment that the indolent feel at the rewards that meritocracy accords to the industrious. A Cold War-era joke imagined a Russian communist who has granted one wish and asks, My neighbor has a cow. I do not. I wish that you should kill that cow. Today, Arthur C. Brooks, the president of the American Enterprise Institute, emphasizes that many of the concrete programs that progressives champion, including Social Security, Medicare, and subsidized college loans, distribute substantial portions of their benefits not to the poor, but rather to the middle class. More pointedly still, Brooks casts the programs as simple resource grabs by a numerous and hence powerful but unsavory interest group. He asks, as a rhetorical thrust, whether redistributive social programs should simply grow and grow until middle-class envy is exhausted. Even egalitarians worry that their sentiments laid bare will reveal themselves as grasping rather than magnanimous. Where inequality is meritocratic, these arguments suggest, demands for economic justice merely launder the currency of middle-class desire. Sometimes all these sentiments come together, and the working rich shout their meritocratic entitlement and their disdain for the middle class confidently from the rooftops. An email circulated widely among finance workers at the height of the Occupy Wall Street movement, as President Obama proposed a millionaire's tax, stated the case clearly. We are Wall Street, the email announced. We get up at 5 a.m. and work till 10 p.m. or later. We're used to not getting up to pee when we have a position. We don't take an hour or more for a lunch break. We don't demand a union. We don't retire at 50 with a pension. We eat what we kill. Meritocracy empowers the working rich to lay down a moral marker, which equality's champions cannot wish away or otherwise ignore. Instead, they must challenge meritocracy head on. <laughs>